Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Nehemiah chapter 11. After the original temple was built by Solomon, the people of Israel gathered together to dedicate that temple to the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 8. And then when the temple was rebuilt under the direction of Zerubbabel, the people of Israel once again gathered in Ezra chapter 6 to dedicate it to the Lord. Now after Nehemiah has orchestrated the rebuilding of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, the people gather to dedicate them to the Lord. And that's what we read about in chapters 11 and 12. Now, these two chapters constitute 83 verses, and so obviously we're not going to look at each verse in detail. In fact, we're not going to have time to even read each verse. But I do want to highlight some things, and as we go through these verses together, I'd like us to note seven things about this dedication service. The people, the prerequisite, the praise, the purification, the procession, the proclamation, and the provision. First of all, the people. And we read about the people in all of chapter 11 and up through verse 26 of chapter 12. Notice the first part of verse, or chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now the walls had been rebuilt, but there was still a major problem in Jerusalem, and that is that there weren't enough people. Now that problem was really uncovered back in chapter 7 and verse 4, where Nehemiah had made this statement, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. And then verse 5 tells us that Nehemiah uncovered a previous census of the people, and now in chapters 11 and 12, he uses that census to repopulate the city. And he does that in three ways. First of all, he leads by example. Nehemiah doesn't just preach about the problem, he does something. And the first part of verse 1 of chapter 11 tells us that he, along with the other leaders, have already moved into Jerusalem. They have already seen the problem. They have already made a commitment to solve the problem before they ever turn to the people. And you see, that's the nature of a leader in God's economy. A leader always leads by example. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter speaks to the elders and he says this, Shepherd the flock of God among you, not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be what? Examples to the flock. We're to be shepherds. How does a shepherd lead? He steps out in front. He establishes the path. He goes first. He leads by example. And that's what we find Nehemiah and the other leaders doing first to solve this problem. Secondly, he drafts the people. Now back in chapter 10, the people pledged a tenth of their produce. Now Nehemiah calls for a tenth of the people, a tithe of the people. One out of every 10 individuals was to move to Jerusalem. And I think we see that Nehemiah is a good leader because Nehemiah doesn't just walk in and say, you, you, and you go to Jerusalem. He doesn't just pick out some names and read them off. Instead, they cast lots. Now, casting lots was kind of like drawing straws. And so, in essence, they had a lottery. They drafted people. And by casting lots, it really removed 
the argument that there was any bias in this, and it also would help the people to understand that this was the will of God. Because prior to the birth of the church and prior to the time when God by His Spirit comes and lives in His children, God's people often use the casting of lots to discern the will of God. In fact, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so when they got singled out by casting the lots, they didn't say, Rats, it's my unlucky day. They said, This must be the will of God. And so Nehemiah leads by example. He has a draft, drafting people, a tenth of the people to come to Jerusalem. And then there's a third thing that he does, and that is he asks for volunteers. If you notice verse 2 again, it says, And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now the ones who were drafted did not volunteer to live in Jerusalem. They were recruited. So there must have been another group which tells us that Nehemiah apparently came before the people and asked for volunteers, and some of the people volunteered to move to Jerusalem. And the other people said what? Bless you. Why? Because that lessened their chance of being drafted. Now, why was it that nobody seemed to want to go to Jerusalem? I mean, they had a brand new wall. Verse 1 says it was the holy city. Why wasn't everybody wanting to move there? Well, I think the answer is very clear. Number one, there was a lot greater work involved in moving to Jerusalem because back in chapter 7 and verse 4, we're told that the houses were not built. So if you were going to move your family to Jerusalem, you were going to have to go there and start from scratch and build a house. So there was a great amount of work involved. There was also greater danger involved in moving to Jerusalem. Even though they had this nice new wall, they understood that if any enemy attacked Israel, what was going to be their main target? The capital city of Jerusalem. They would move in and bypass the little farming villages and go right after Jerusalem. So they knew that by living in the city, they were really going to become a target for any enemies who came. And so the danger was greater. But I think a third thing we can talk about is the fact that they made a greater sacrifice by moving to Jerusalem. Because if you look at verse 3, it says, Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah, each lived on his own property in their cities. Those who stayed in the cities lived on their own property. Those who moved to Jerusalem gave up their property. You see, they left their houses, they left their farms, and they moved to Jerusalem. There was a sacrifice involved in doing so. And despite the challenges of moving to Jerusalem, we're told, the leaders did so, others volunteered to do so, and those who were drafted did so. And the rest of chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12 lists for us the people who made this move to Jerusalem. Now, we've become accustomed to Nehemiah giving us certain lists. Back in chapter 3, he told us who the people were who worked on the wall. In chapter 7, he lists the names of those who returned with Zerubbabel. In chapter 8, he records the names of the leaders in the Bible conference. In chapter 10, he names the 84 men who signed the dedication covenant. And now here in chapter 11, he gives us a long list of the individuals who have moved into the city of Jerusalem. And I'd like us to note several things about them before we move on. Number one, their credentials. 
We see that in verses 4 to 9. We're told that some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. And then he lists the, the sons of Judah. And down in verse 7, he gives us the sons of Benjamin. He is tracing these two tribes because these are the two tribes that had the territory right around Jerusalem. And these are the two tribes that stayed faithful to God when the other ten tribes seceded. And if you remember, in God's providence, he is also isolating the tribe of Judah because the tribe of Judah is a tribe through whom the Messiah would come. And so he's preserving the genealogy of Judah to trace it down to Messiah. And so he singles out Judah and Benjamin. Then he gives us some titles of the people. If you notice verse 10, we read about the priests. Verse 15, the Levites. Verse 19, the gatekeepers. Verse 21, the temple servants. Verse 24 mentions an individual who was the king's representative. He represented the king of Persia in Jerusalem, and he was also from the tribe of Judah. In verses 25 through the end of chapter 11, we're given the names of the villages that the other sons of Judah and Benjamin lived in. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 26, he gives us a detailed genealogy of the high priests and the priests who were functioning at that time. And that was for the purpose of future generations so that they could look back and trace the genealogy to keep the priesthood pure. And so he establishes this for them. We're also given numbers of people here. Verse 6 tells us that the sons of Perez were 468. Verse 8 tells us the sons of Benjamin were 928. Verse 18 tells us the Levites were 284 and so on. We're also told that there was order to this arrangement. Verse 9 says that, that Joel, the son of Zechariah, was their overseer. That is, overseer of the people of Benjamin. Verse 14 at the end tells us that the overseer of the priests was a man by the name of Zaddeel. Verse 21 at the end says... Zihah and Gishpah were in charge of the temple servants. Verse 22, now the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi. And so we're given this order. And then also we're told that various people had various responsibilities. Verses 10 to 12 tells us that the 822 priests worked in the temple. Verses 15 to 16 tells us that the Levites worked outside the temple. So there were 822 priests working in the temple. There were almost 300 Levites working outside the temple. Now, we're not told what the outside work was. I'm sure it was probably not mowing the grass or something like that, but it was the equivalent of that. There was jobs to be done. And that's really synonymous with the New Testament. When we find that elders are to lead in a spiritual area, we're, we're told about the deacons who are to serve tables in the words of Acts chapter 6. And so there was much to be done. And then notice verse 17. And Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, who was the leader in beginning the thanksgiving at prayer. Mataniah, I like this guy. This guy, we're told, was a man of prayer. And he impacted the work of God. Now, we're not told anything else about him. Maybe he couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. Maybe he didn't put any rocks on the wall, but he prayed. And I like this guy because I like to believe that in our church, and in fact, I know it's true, there are individuals who are committed to prayer. And they don't get a whole lot of limelight for it, but they're impacting 
the work of God. Here's an important work this man is doing. He is praying for the work of God. And then if you notice verse 22, it tells us that the sons of Asaph were singers. Chapter 12, verse 24, mentions some of the Levites who were assigned to praise and give thanks. Verse 25 of chapter 12 talks about the gatekeepers at the storehouse. These are the people involved in this dedication. Now what's interesting is this was about 2,500 years ago and if you would take the time to read down through this list of names, there are many that you can't pronounce. And there are most that we know nothing else about. These are really anonymous people. But I think what's encouraging to me is that God by allowing this list to be in scripture is saying to us that these people are important. That though they may be anonymous to us 2,500 years later, they are not anonymous to God. And he notices and he knows what's going on. And of course, the same thing is true in the church today. And I get to stand up here every Sunday and you get to see me. And afterwards, some of you come and say, boy, that was a good message. And some of you just walk by me like this. You know? And I can read body language. I mean, I'm not stupid. But, see, I'm up here, and you can see me, and that's a very visual thing, and my gift of teaching is a very visual gift, but there are many other people doing many other things that are not so noticed. Brent's back there running the soundboard right now. You probably don't even know he's there until he makes a mistake. You don't come up to Brent and say, good service. You know, that was, way to go. You know, you don't do that, but he's ministering. There are people taping. There are people copying tapes. There are people who clean up the kitchen. There are people out here sweeping the floors. There are people uh, who teach Sunday school classes, who counsel with people throughout the week, who invite people, who visit those in the hospital. All these things are going on, and they're not very public things. Those gifts don't get into the limelight, but you see, though your gift may be anonymous or unknown to many people, it's very important to God. And that's what this passage is really underlying. The fact that we have a multiplicity of responsibilities and they're all necessary in accomplishing the work of God and God notices. In fact, this passage tells me that God notices not only what we do, but our motives. A lot of people moved to Jerusalem. Some of them did it voluntarily. And some of them had to be drafted and God even noticed that. He noticed the motive that, that caused some to say, I'll go, I'll make the sacrifice. And God made note of that, and he continues to. That's the people. Secondly, we see the prerequisite in verse 27 of chapter 12. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness. Now, if you've been with us through the study of Nehemiah, you'll remember that the wall was completed back in chapter 6. You say, well, why have they waited till chapter 12 to dedicate it? Why have they waited six chapters? Well, the answer is because the people were not ready in chapter 6. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 tell us about a revival that took place in the people of Israel. And so though the walls were up in chapter 6, the people were down. Though the walls were ready, the people were not ready. And so now after going through this revival, the people are finally ready to dedicate the walls. And you see, that is the prerequisite. You cannot dedicate something to God before you first dedicate yourself 
to God. There's a lot of people today who dedicate church buildings and houses and children to the Lord. And I think that's a proper thing. But there's a prerequisite. See, it does me no good to dedicate my child to the Lord if I'm not dedicated to the Lord. It makes no sense for me to dedicate my new dream house to the Lord if I'm going to move in with my old marriage and not dedicate that to the Lord. It makes no sense to dedicate a church building to the Lord if the people are not dedicated to the Lord. And you see, that is the prerequisite. The people of Jerusalem dedicated themselves to the Lord and then they were ready to dedicate the walls. Third point is the praise. We see that in verses 27 to 29. Notice, now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem, from the villages and from the fields, for that is where they were staying. That's a uh, paraphrase. Now notice the atmosphere of this dedication service. They celebrated with gladness. They sang hymns of thanksgiving. They had songs with instruments and singers. In fact, singing is used eight times in this chapter. Thanksgiving is mentioned six times. Rejoicing is mentioned seven times. And musical instruments are mentioned three times. This was a time of praise. You ever go to a sporting event for your home team? And your home team scores the winning points right at the end of the game? What do you do? If you're like me, you get up and you holler. Now, if that happens and you happen to turn around and you see someone sitting there looking indifferent, you're probably going to say, what's the problem with that guy? He must be for the other team. And you see, as I look around at people who say they're Christians, who are not praising God... You know what I say? What's wrong? See, let me, in on, let me let you in on something. We're winning. The, the, the winning points were scored at the resurrection. There's an empty tomb. And because of that, we are not only winning, we are guaranteed to win. And so there's no reason for us as Christians not to be praising God. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, we're told to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. It ought to be the continual activity of my life. In Psalm 107, we read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you're redeemed, you ought to be saying so. God has blessed us with so many things, we can't be silent about it. And the people in this day were praising God. And they were really praising God for a couple of things. Number one, they were saying, thank you to Him. You see, they had gotten out there and worked on the wall. But as they worked on the wall, God had put His hand and His power into it. And as a result, when they got finished, they didn't say, my, look what we did. 
they said, wow, look what God did. And you know, whenever we do something for God, that's always what happens. When I put my hand to the work of God, guess what happens? God puts his hand to it. And I'm always amazed by what's, what's accomplished. And I always get done and I'm always saying, praise God for what he's done. We went on the high school uh, trip week before last. And several of the leaders came up to me and said, you know, I went on that trip to serve and to work and to give. And guess what? I got more than I ever anticipated. And God did more than I ever anticipated. Isn't that true? We'd stepped out to do something for God and he did something more than we anticipated and we end up saying what? Praise God for what you've done. That's always the way it is when we serve the Lord. But what's interesting here is they don't just say thank you for what God has done in the past. They are coming to dedicate these walls to the Lord. That means they're looking toward the future. See, they're not finished. They don't finish the walls and say, we're done. A lot of people build a new building and think they're finished. That's just a starting point. They build the walls and now they say, Lord, these are your walls for what you're going to do in the future. And so they're rejoicing as they look back. They're rejoicing as they look forward. Which brings us to the fourth point, And that is the purification in verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Now, chapter 8 tells us that they had spent day after day listening to the Word of God. Chapter 9 tells us that they fasted and dressed in sackcloth and repented before God. And chapter 10 tells us that they made a written commitment to obey God and they signed it. Now, most of these people are in better spiritual relationship with God than they've ever been in their life. But when they come on this day to dedicate the walls, they don't just traipse right into the presence of God. They say, we need to be purified. Now, the way they purified people and things in that day was that the priests would take off their clothes and they would actually ceremonially wash them. They would bathe themselves. They would make sacrifices to the Lord and that would be their way of purifying themselves. And the reason they do this is because they understand that God is holy. Now, if you're a Christian here today, we have the privilege of coming into the presence of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But as we come into the presence of God, we need to make sure that we're purified. You know how that happens? Listen to this verse in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As I come before the Lord, I need to be honest with Him about the sin in my own life. I need to confess that to him. That word means to agree with God about what I have done. And as I do that, he not only forgives that sin that I bring before him that I'm aware of, he even cleanses me of the sins I'm not even aware of that I've committed. And so I'm cleansed before God. And that's the way we ought to come. That's the way the priests came on this occasion because they understood that God is holy. Sometimes I see people doing things, sinful acts and so forth, and they'll say something like, well, God understands. Well, let me tell you something this morning. God doesn't understand. 
God never excuses sin. He makes provision for sin, but He doesn't excuse it. God is still just as holy today as He ever was. And when we come before God, we realize that God has provided the sacrifice of His Son, but I never take sin lightly. I never say, oh, that's no big deal. God will understand. I need to come and see sin the way God sees sin, and I need to confess it before a holy God. And we see that in the example of the Levites. They purified themselves as they came before the Lord, and then they purified the people for this day of dedication. And if you notice the rest of verse 30, it actually says they purified the gates and the walls. Now, how do you purify gates, and how do you purify walls? I mean, a wall is a wall, right? Well, in the Old Testament, if you read carefully, you'll find that there were a lot of holy things in the Old Testament. Uh, there was the city of Jerusalem, which was holy. The temple was holy. The robes of the priests were holy. The cups in the temple were holy. Moses was told at the burning bush that he was standing on holy ground. There are many things in the Old Testament that are said to be holy. That is, they are set apart for God. In the New Testament, the emphasis is on the spiritual and that's why we're told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That God by His Spirit indwells us. And that's why in the New Testament we are called, if you're a believer, we are called saints. And saints means holy ones. We are the holy ones. And so we don't have holy cities and holy buildings and holy walls. We don't have anything that's intrinsically... This, this building is not intrinsically holy this pulpit is not intrinsically holy. That piano is not intrinsically holy. See, it's neutral. I can use it for something that honors God, or I can use it for something that dishonors God. See, the issue is who's using it and what's the purpose. You see, if I am purified and if I am right with God, then I am allowed to do other things and use other things to glorify Him. And I think even in the ceremonial economy of Israel, we see that in verse 30 because it says the priests and the Levites first purified themselves and then the people and then the walls. They realized that they had to first operate and work on themselves in relationship to God. They came in purity before Him. Which brings us to the fifth point and that's the procession in verses 31 to 42. Notice verse 31. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Verse 38, the second choir proceeded to the left while I followed with them with half the people. And verse 36 at the end tells us that Ezra led the first choir. Verse 38 tells us that Nehemiah was in the second choir. And so they started on the west wall. Ezra and half the people went on top of the wall to the south, and Nehemiah and half the people went on the wall to the north, and they met on the eastern side. And as they were going, verse 35 tells us that some of the priests were playing trumpets. Verse 36 tells us that some were playing musical instruments, and verse 42 tells us that the singers were singing. Now you say, well, why didn't they just meet at the temple, have a nice little ceremony, and go home? I mean, why did they go through all of this? Well, I think there are several reasons. One is because they are dedicating the walls. So doesn't it make sense to be in touch with the walls while you're really dedicating them to the Lord? I mean, if we were going to dedicate 
an education wing, we wouldn't have the ceremony here. We would go there to dedicate it to the Lord, to give it to Him. And so that made sense. I think it also is a visual demonstration of the blessing of God. God had blessed them, so so they say, let's get up on the walls and really see what God has blessed. And that kind of tells you what kind of wall this was because all these people got on top of it. This is a big wall that God has provided. And that really explains to us why they were so excited with this accomplishment. But I think it also expresses the unity of the people because back in chapter 3 we're told that Various people did little sections of the wall. A lot of people built the section right by their house. And so there might have been a tendency to say, you know, that's my wall right there. So what do they do? They all get on top of the wall, the whole wall, and they walk around the whole wall and they give it all to the Lord. See, there's a problem, and it happens in churches sometimes when people get territorial. Say, that's my pew got my name on the end of it. My grandpa paid for that education wing. See, we get territorial. I heard about a church where a Sunday school class sued the church when they were asked to vacate their Sunday school class and move to another area of the building. That's getting a little possessive. These people walked on the wall and they said, God, it's all yours. We're taking our hands off it and we're dedicating it to you. But I think there's one other thing that this expresses, and that is a unity of purpose. You see, Ezra was the religious leader. He takes half the people and walks on top of the south part of the wall. Nehemiah is the political leader. He takes half the people and walks on the northern part of the wall. And verse 40 says, Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I and half the officials with me. Ezra, the religious leader, and Nehemiah, the political leader, go around the tops of the walls and they meet where? They meet at the temple. What does that tell us? In this city, there is no separation of church and state. They come together and they meet at this one meeting place, which is the temple, and what are they saying? In this city, run by Ezra, the religious leader, and Nehemiah, the governor, that these walls define in this city we are united in one purpose and that purpose is that God is in the center of all that we do. Which brings us to the sixth point and that is the proclamation. And we see that in verse 43. And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Now at the dedication of the first temple in 1 Kings 8, 5, we're told that they sacrificed so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted. And Zerubbabel followed that pattern in Ezra 6, 17 when we're told that he dedicated the second temple and he sacrificed over 700 bulls, rams, lambs, and goats. And so here in verse 43, when we're told that they offered great sacrifices, we need to understand that in the context, and that tells me that there were an awful lot of sacrifices going on in Jerusalem on this day. They came around on the walls, and when they got to the temple, there was sacrifice after sacrifice being offered in praise to God. And as the people participate in this dedication service, they're not just going through the motions. They're not just listening to the professional choir and sort of nodding in approval. They are getting into it. 
See, they're, they're up on the walls, and, I, and uh, music is being played, and there's singing going on, and they're not just walking in, in uh, military march. They're kind of, you know, getting with the music, and they're singing, and that's why we read here that there was great joy, the kind of joy that only God can give. They were experiencing. And this joy was contagious because it says even the women and children rejoiced, even those who weren't on the walls who were standing around in the city, were rejoicing as well. And then it tells us that the joy was loud because verse 43 at the end says, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Now why does Nehemiah tell us how far the noise of the joy traveled? Well, I think the answer is what we learned back in chapter 4. Because you remember when they started building the walls, their enemies came out and began to mock them. And in chapter 4, we're told that a fellow by the name of Tobiah said, you know, if a fox jumps on that wall, he'll knock it down. So now, Nehemiah says, they've rebuilt the walls, they're up on top of the walls, jumping around and marching, and the, and the walls are doing fine, and the joy of their celebration is reaching afar. Who's probably listening? Tobiah. You know, if I was in that crowd, I'd probably turn toward Tobiah and say, you know, fox this, you know. Uh, but, but we don't read that here, so we're going to assume they had a pure attitude as they celebrate before the Lord. But this celebration is really a proclamation to their enemies of what God has accomplished. You know, some of you are here today and you are rebuilding the walls of your personal spiritual life. You may be rebuilding the walls of your marriage. You may be rebuilding the walls of your church life. And I guarantee you that if you are doing that, there are people who are mocking. There are people who are making fun of you. It always happens that way. And we need to learn from the people in Nehemiah's day to stay faithful to God and to allow Him to rebuild the walls in our lives so that someday we will be able to stand on top of those walls and celebrate what God has done and that celebration will actually be a proclamation to those who mocked us in the past. When Christians really become Christians, sinners can't help but see. Which brings us to the seventh point, and that is the provision in verses 44 to 47. Verse 44, on that day men were also appointed over the chambers of the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather, in, to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. Now, the people had made a commitment back in chapter 10 to give their tithes and offerings. And now, to make sure that happens, they appoint certain men who will go out into the fields and actually bring those tithes and that, that produce into the storehouses. Now, what's interesting here is that they don't simply do this out of obedience to the law of God. We're told at the end of verse 44 that they do it because they were pleased with their ministering priests and Levites. They didn't just do it out of obedience to the law. They did it because they wanted to. They did it because they wanted to provide for those who were ministering to them. Why were they pleased? Look at verse 45. For they, that is those who ministered, performed the worship of their God and the service of purification, 
together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and of his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. They were pleased with their ministering priests and Levites. Why? Because they were committed people. They not only purified themselves personally, as we read back in verse 30, but verse 45 tells us they themselves were obedient to the Word of God. They didn't decide how to conduct worship on the basis of what they thought. They went back to the precepts laid down by David and Solomon in the past, and they obeyed the Word of God. And because they obeyed the Word of God, the people were anxious to give in support of that ministry. Hudson Taylor, the noted missionary, used to say, when God's work is done God's way for God's glory, it will not lack God's support. And that's what we see here. And it's capped off in verse 47. And so all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites and the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. People were giving out of a cheerful heart. And of course the prerequisite for giving is found in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 8.5 and that is, it's said of the Macedonians that they first gave themselves to the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord and then they willingly and cheerfully gave everything else to the Lord. And that's really the principle we find in this passage. In chapters 8 through 10, we find the people giving themselves to the Lord. And so it's not surprising when we come to chapters 11 and 12 to find them giving their houses in the village in order to move to Jerusalem. It's not surprising to see them giving their time to serve both inside and outside of the temple. It's not surprising to see them giving this wall in dedication to the Lord. It's not surprising to see them giving their praise to glorify the Lord. And it's not surprising to see them giving their tithes and their offerings to support the work of God. And I guess my closing message to each of us this morning and my closing desire is that we would be found as faithful as people like Mataniah and Uzi and these other unknown yet well-known individuals who made a difference for God. Let's close in prayer. As we do, I'm going to ask uh, Justin Robinette to come. And uh, after the service, I'm going to ask you to come and uh, greet him. Justin was baptized today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage of scripture and we've passed through it quickly, but it reminds us of many, many people who gave themselves to you and then gave everything else to you. And Lord, we mark the difference that they made because of that. And Lord, I pray as we examine our own hearts today that we truly might give ourselves to you and then release our hands from the other things that we might be clinging to and hand those to you as well, that you might use everything we have and everything we are to further your kingdom in this world. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory in Jesus' name.